Hello, thank you for downloading this episode of The Final Third. We have an amazing episode for you guys today. We talk City winning the Carabao Cup. We have changes in the Champions League. We talk about all the great things happening in the lower leagues, all the exciting promotion battles there. We also talk about whether the U.S. men's national team should focus on the Gold Cup or the Nations League. Before that, make sure that you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Final Third Show and give us a rating and follow us wherever you listen to us on. And with that, Let's get to the show. All right, welcome back to the final third podcast. It's great to see you on this Monday morning or whenever you're listening to this. My name is Adrian Tabura. I'm everyone's favorite Minnesota United, U.S. national team fan and West Ham United fan. I'm joined by Jack. Yeah, hello. I'm, uh, I'm Jack. I'm a Chelsea fan. I'm going to I'm going to forget teams of course. Uh Atalanta fan, Minnesota United fan, French national team fan and Slovakia national team fan. And I've got to say I apologize for my audio yes. quality this week because my microphone driver died for some reason and so I'm recording off of my phone through a headset. Hopefully it's not too bad and hopefully it doesn't affect this too badly, but yeah, if if it's a little bit lower quality than usual, that's my bad. Yes, all good, all good. Jack, you know, he has the $30 mic, so, you know, give, give him a break, give him a break. We're, we're working to figure that out. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram because it always makes us feel good. It makes us really committed to this podcast when we get, you know, a lot of followers, a lot of engagement on there. That's at Final Third Show. And leave a rating as well on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You know, it really helps follow us on there as well. It always uh, brightens our day to see people leave ratings. And we also would like to thank everyone for joining us on the live stream this past Saturday. It was West Ham versus Chelsea. Jack, did you have a good time uh, doing that live stream with me? I think I definitely had a better time than you uh, <laughs> since I'm the true. Chelsea fan. So Yes, and we're going to get into that game later on in the episode. But uh, just to reiterate you know, how this podcast works, the format, we're going to go over the five big stories, uh, some smaller stories as well, go over Jack's new segment, Jack's lower league lowdown, where he's going to cover some of the lower leagues around Europe. I'm going to go into my section, the U.S. men's national team corner, where I ask a very specific question about the U.S. men's national team. And then we're going to talk about predictions, last week's predictions and prediction predictions on the biggest games this coming week. That's enough for the intro. Let's just get right into the big stories. Jack, why don't you kick it off with a little bit of some uh, social justice action on social media? Take it away. Yeah, well, if you remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about racism and uh, discrimination and protest in the sport of soccer. But now the Premier League clubs, English Football League clubs, so all 92 in that Football League pyramid and the Women's Super League clubs are going to join in a four-day boycott of social media platforms in an effort to combat abuse and discrimination. This is going to start uh, this next weekend, so it's going to start on April 30th and run until May 3rd. The Football Association released a statement saying that this boycott signifies their collective anger over uh, social media being used as a regular vessel for toxic abuse. They're trying to make a symbolic gesture with some power to people with power uh, that they need to act to create change and try and make social media a more hospitable environment rather than a hostile environment. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, players have been supporting this after the Brighton versus Sheffield United game. David McGoldrick and Neil Malpe, who both were subject of online abuse last season and this season, said that they really were in support of this boycott. And, uh, you know, every team in the football league has agreed to this. So that's 92 teams that have all agreed to it. And this comes after a ton of other clubs have followed that and also uh, some other players. Swansea City turned off their social media accounts for a week, uh, three weeks ago, in order to make a stand against abuse of their players. Birmingham City and uh, and also Scottish uh, league team Rangers boycotted social media because of player abuse. The, the biggest or most high profile change was Arsenal and France striker, the former Arsenal and France striker Thierry Henry, player I have a lot of admiration for, removing himself from social media in March because of right. racism and bullying across platforms. They're hoping to make a change with all of this. And it looks like they have the backing of the UK government as well, uh, with Culture Minister Oliver Dowden saying that racist online abuse is never acceptable. And they're actually going to try pushing out online safety laws to hold the social media companies accountable. Basically, the story behind all of that. So if you're not seeing any posts next weekend from your favorite English clubs, that's why. But AJ, I have a question for you. What else should these clubs be doing to combat hate speech online? Is there any other further steps they should take? Uh, and if so, what are they? I think you know it's, it's very hard when it's online, especially because when it's in stadium, when it's their fans in the stands, it's a lot easier to kind of quell that, that hatred because they're able to just have a lifetime ban from them, uh, get them out of the stadium forever. When it's online, I think the biggest steps that they could take is A, just always calling it out, making an example out of the fans. If you spout out racism, you're, you're just not a real fan. I guess that's what I'm trying to trying to get at. Having a lot of active support from, from their favorite players can really quell fans. Always have pro-anti-racism uh, marketing. have it always be in the forefront of all of your messaging because it needs to be especially in this climate that we find ourselves right now but jack i I have a follow-up question for you specifically when you're talking about the the teams trying to get some more change out of social media platforms there are a lot of people who don't want that to happen not necessarily because they're racist but because they don't want social media to have so much power they don't want the government to have so much power over free speech online a lot of uh, free speech advocates are worried that if you require people to i don't know uh require them to have their their full name or uh their their face on their social media or or like ban all kinds of speech even if it's bad that might go against free speech what do you say to those people do they have valid concerns or how should the government, the UK government deal with those concerns? Well, you know, as a political science major, I mean, obviously I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give like legal advice because I'm, I'm not a lawyer by any means, but just in what I know about freedom of speech, you know, it protects you. It, It allows you to say what you want, but it doesn't mean that you can't, there's no consequences for what you say. So I think that I don't think this is should be a concern because the people who might be concerned about this, if they're concerned that it will affect them, then they're exactly the kind of people that need to be stopped from saying that sort of language. And, you know, there's, there's got to be something done because it, it's, it's one thing to like, you know, say, 
ah, this player played poorly. But when you're saying like actual things, like hurtful things and bullying them, then that's over the line. I, I don't think maybe, you know, maybe it's not, it's not something like they have to have a picture of themselves and like their act, their actual name, and their profile. Sure. That doesn't necessarily need to be the case, but what I think it, it does mean is there, there's gotta be some more oversight as to the information you put in when you register and making sure that, you know, there's actual consequences for when you say those things, not just like an account getting banned or something like that for a few days, because that's often what these social media platforms do. They'll put them in like Twitter timeout or whatever. There, there needs to be more concrete consequences. Interesting, interesting. We'll see how this story unfolds and we'll be covering it right alongside everyone else. But moving on to, you know, still in the UK, we have Manchester City winning the EFL League Cup. This is their sixth title since 2014. Also their fourth in a row, causing a lot of fans to try to rename it into the Man City Cup or whatever because they've just been so dominant uh, in the competition. And I talk later about what actually happened in the game as Man City took down Tottenham Hotspur's 1-0 to zero in the final at Wembley Stadium. But let's talk about what it means for both City and Spurs. For City specifically, after crashing out of the FA Cup to the hands of Chelsea, City needed this trophy in order to make the season truly successful and potentially get a treble. Not the perfect treble, because that involves winning the FA Cup, but you know another type of treble. And it reinforces City's strength and dominance in this competition. You know, for a lot of City fans and the City players themselves, it was just another Tuesday, pretty much, winning the the competition that they are at this point expected to win season in and season out. But for Spurs, this meant a lot, lot more. Because after sacking Jose Mourinho mere days before the final, Spurs needed this win for two main reasons. One, they need to win a trophy for the first time in 13 years. And two, they needed this trophy and they needed this win in order to keep Harry Kane, England's captain, their captain as well. I believe that he's their captain. He might not be. I don't know. Uh, no, but, Maurice is their captain. Maurice right, that, that, that is, that is right. Captain, that is yeah. right. Uh, but despite reaching the finals of the EFL Cup, the Champions League, and getting runners up in the Premier League, Tottenham still have not won a trophy since the late 2000s making clear that there's a gap between Spurs and the other big six. I don't see how Spurs see the last four years as anything but a slow burn downwards. As poor transfer policy, confusing management hires, and mediocre on-the-field output gets worse and worse year after year. At some point, being so cool on the players and the fans, and it affects their mentality to the point where not only do they have to fight their opposition, but fight their own mental blocks, which I think was a big part of why they lost to City. Kane was also rumored to leave this summer, especially if Spurs failed to win a trophy this season. There's actually a post on the subreddit saying, uh, this is a quote from Harry Kane in 2017. In three years time, if I haven't won a few trophies by then, it will be disappointing. And with news that he's looking to leave Spurs, if they don't win this trophy, if they have another trophyless season, it brings up a lot of questions because this is another trophyless season for Tottenham. So how long can Spurs keep Kane or keep Son? They've put their heart and soul into the team and it still haven't won silverware with them. I wouldn't be surprised if we see Spurs truly enter a rebuilding phase where they offload some stars and focus on rebuilding their foundation from the ground up. 
because their defense and midfield can be pretty middling at times. And there's been so many instances where Sun and Kane are the only bright spots for Tottenham. Something needs to change. And that's where I'm going to leave it right there because, you know, it, there's a lot of things that we don't know yet about the two situations at these two different clubs, what it means in the long run. But Jack, in your mind, how do you fix Tottenham right now? And if you, if you did your plan, would that even be enough to keep Harry Kane at the club? Well, I think you're right that they need to go into some rebuilding because they're, this team, it just hasn't been good enough. You know, they, I mean, it, it's kind of tough to say because, you know, I, there's so many problem areas, honestly, I think in, in Spurs, uh, the defense, they need a reliable center back pairing because Eric Dyer isn't cutting it. Right. Serge Aurier on the right isn't cutting it. And that's the right side of defense. That's just really weak. Even Sergio Regulon, he he's not as good as he was in Sevilla on loan. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it just hasn't been good enough in the midfield. Hoiberg is probably their only bright spot, but he can only do so much when, you know, like Harry Winks isn't really much to, to uh, like, isn't really up, up to snuff to, to a lot of the midfields and constantly gets overrun. And, you know, I, I also think like this transfer in a bail was not the best move. I, I, I don't, I don't know exactly how you fix them. It, it, there's gotta be some rebuilding, but I don't think it's going to be enough to keep Harry Kane. I'm not sure if you'll be able to leave this summer because of okay. club finances and stuff like that. But I think that he's like, after this, he's got one foot out the door. There's a possibility I could see him putting in like a transfer request to this summer and saying, look, I, I'm in my prime. I don't want to end up like trophyless or something like that. I, I want to go and win something. And, you know, Manchester City, all I'm saying is, is, is they're looking for a striker now that Aguero is leaving and Gabriel Jesus hasn't really been up to, up to par. So maybe they could splash the cash for him, especially since Messi might be off the table for them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. but yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure if anything they do at this point is really going to be enough to keep Harry Kane because they've just shown time and time again, they can't compete for trophy trophies. Yes. I think Harry Kane's going to be kicking himself because he did sign a what six, seven year long contract back in the the eve of the world cup in 2018. So he's kind of have has himself to blame for putting himself in such a hole. It's going to, going to put all the pressure on Spurs to decide his future. I mean, the, the cards are on their table pretty much, but let's move on to, you know, we're talking about, you know, Harry Kane transferring out of Tottenham Hotspur. We have some, players who have had some big moves including Frankie Amaya who pulled a Harry Cannon tried to force himself out of a club and it ended up working so Jack walk us through some very big transfers in MLS yeah so we have three really big transfers that took place over the course of this week first of all like AJ talked about New York Red Bulls signed Frankie Amaya from FC Cincinnati you know this has been a kind of brief transfer saga and uh because amaya said he wanted to leave red bulls said they wanted to sign him uh cincinnati a few weeks ago actually filed uh for some for some meddling claims that they were trying to meddle in in his contract and uh that that didn't it made it look like red red bulls wouldn't be able to sign him but in fact they were able to do it and it wasn't inexpensive $950,000 in general allocation money. 
And then Red Bull New York could end up spending a further 125000 in allocation money if there's certain performance-based incentives that are reached. So that could end up being a seven-figure transfer for just a 20-year-old who was, who was the number one overall pick in the 2019 MLS Super Draft. But he was one of the few bright spots in FC Cincinnati's midfield last season. And even though he didn't always chip in goals, he looked pretty threatening when he was able to play. Second, and the one that's closest to AJ and I, is Minnesota United signing Adrian Unu from Stade Rene in League On. And this is massive because he comes in as a designated player from a league where Minnesota have found some of their best talents. Bakay, Dibasi, and Roman Menonier both came from League On. And, you know, he's been linked to Minnesota for a while now. And he arrives on a three-year contract. It looks like he is uh, $3.6 million for a transfer, which makes him the second highest transfer in Minnesota's history. He scored 38 goals in seven seasons with Rene and was in the Europa League and Champions League. He didn't do very well in those, but he did, uh, he did, he did play in both of those and won the Coupe de France. So he's an mm-hmm. impressive signing, and it could fill a hole that Minnesota have needed for a while a natural goal scorer. Last season, Luis Amarillo was supposed to be that for them, but he really wasn't because of injuries. And with uh, Emmanuel Reynoso behind him, it could be very big. And what I have to say to any French listeners out there, I know we have a few. Adrian Unu pourrait être le meilleur attaquant dans la Ligue de Major League Soccer sur peu adapté à la Ligue. And what that means is I think that Adrian Unu could be the best attacker in the league if he adapts in time. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I really, I'm really excited for this transfer personally. That's the one I'm most excited about, but Toronto is definitely excited about a different one yes. as Jefferson Soteldo. I'm probably mispronouncing that <laughs> is going to Toronto FC from Santos. And this is a massive transfer. He costs approximately $6 million and he's coming in as a designated player, of course. And Toronto is receiving 75% of the players' rights. But Santos has a 12.5% sell-on fee. But he becomes their third designated player alongside Alejandro Pozuelo and Josie Altador. And he is the youngest designated player that Toronto FC have signed, aside from one other, Matias Laba, who signed for them in 2013. So uh, this could be a very good signing for them. He is a left-wing slash attacking midfielder and given the injuries that Toronto has to start the season he could be a very important piece but I think one of the more interesting reasons is why he is why Toronto was able to get there and it can reveal something about MLS as a whole right now Santos are in a lot of financial trouble they're not making as much money they're in a pretty bad economic situation and the reason he signed for Toronto was because they were able to offer a more competitive wage than some clubs in Europe that were looking at him as well. And he wanted to go there because he believes that it's going that MLS is one of the biggest up-and-coming leagues in the world, and he wants to be a part of that. So that just shows how much pull MLS is having in South America right now, attracting these really talented youngsters who want to make a, a difference in this really exciting league. 
and showing that it can be competitive with all of these other European leagues. So I think that's pretty interesting. I think it's also interesting given that all of Toronto's DPs are attackers and two of them are in the exact same position. But uh, I think that this is a good signing as well. I know I've been talking about these transfers for a while, but AJ, which of these signings do you think will be the most impactful for their team? I think all of them are going to be very impactful in their own way. We have Frankie Amaya. We're watching the New York Red Bulls LA Galaxy game right now. I think Frankie Amaya could add a lot into the midfield next to Caden Clark, another up-and-comer. Uno for MNUFC. I mean, he's a good attacker. I think he's going to get bag a lot of goals, get some assists. But at the end of the day, Minnesota United probably needs some more depth in defense and not necessarily the attack. So I'm going to go as Soteldo with TFC, specifically because there is a lot of potential with him and Pozuelo and whoever is their striker. I think there's going to be a lot of synergy between those three different pieces. And I think he takes this TFC team from potential contender to legitimately a top four contender in the East. It all depends on, again, their injuries, as you mentioned. That's going to be a very big thing we're going to have to look out for. But we're also going to have to look out for the UCL format changes coming in 2024. Let's get into that, because that is obviously one of the biggest news this past week on the outskirts of the Super League news. We have seen UEFA and FIFA announce kind of in the fog, this the smoke screen of the Super League news, a new format for the Champions League in Europe. Instead of a group stage with 32 total teams, we'll have a league stage with 36 total teams. Each team will play 10 other teams, either home or away, which is four more games than the current format. So that's right. There is no home and away return leg. It's just 10 random teams. Well, not exactly random. It's seeded. But you may be asking yourself, with 36 new teams, there's four more slots for teams to come in. So who gets those slots? Well, according to UEFA, slot one goes to one additional place to the club ranked third in the championship of the association in fifth position in the UEFA National Association ranking. Slot two uh, will be awarded to the domestic champion by extending from four to five the number of clubs qualifying via the so-called champion's path. And slots three and four, the contentious slots, awarded to the two clubs with the highest club coefficients that have not yet qualified automatically for the Champions League stage, but have qualified either for the Champions League qualification phase or the Europa slash the Europa Conference League. So one will be from the third place team of the fifth ranked nation. So that I think right now is France. So they'll have a Champions League spot for the third place team. One will come from the qualification. So more teams will, can qualify through the qualifying rounds. So some more smaller uh, nations will be able to get some teams in. And two, go to teams with high coefficients, meaning that teams that play badly, like Arsenal and Tottenham, can still make it in because their club coefficients is high. So they can finish fifth or sixth for all that matters and still make it whoever finishes at a high level elsewhere across the, the continent. And that has brought up a lot of concerns. But we'll get to that in a second. You may be asking yourself, how do knockout rounds work? Well, since it's a league table, it's, it's kind of weird, but the top eight qualify automatically for the round of 16. Then spots 9 through 24 play each other in a two-leg playoff to make the round of 16. Whoever wins those ties goes on to qualify 
for uh, that round of 16. And from there, it's the same as usual. So now let's talk about what this means for soccer. On one hand, it could be cool. More meaningful games in the group stage with top-level teams going against those other top-level teams. You don't have to have any dead rubber games anymore. You can always play for a higher position. So teams will be fighting until the last match day for a better position. Before, you'd have teams, if they already qualified for the next round, just kind of coast by for the last one or two match days. That's no longer the case. And lastly, more games is good for smaller teams, and an expanded field means smaller clubs from France and other small nations could shine. I just called France a small nation. That's not what I meant to say. But, you know, I'll say it, bro. Farmers League. Farmers League. No, I'm just kidding. But on the other hand, it could be terrible. An unbalanced schedule makes it hard for it to be competitively fair. One team can get a much easier schedule than another team. And unlike groups where they have to play every other team and all the schedules are bounced within the group. You have teams that can miss on the round of 16 because they just so happen to draw Barcelona, Bayern and Porto away. And they may miss it out to a team that drew Dynamo Zagreb, Molda and PSV Eindhoven at home. Theoretically, the seeding of the league should make this a non-issue, but we've seen how seeding is not necessarily the best indication of strength. Uh, more games means more injuries to players. With the expanded league stage and play-in round, teams can potentially have to play six more games than the in the competition proper than you know editions past. Players like Gundogan of City have spoken out, saying that players didn't get consulted at all for this change. More games equals more fatigue equals more injuries. More games between top-level teams dilutes excitement. Part of the excitement of the Champions League is how important and grand matches between teams like Bayern and Barcelona, Juventus, and Manchester United are. And it's interesting and draws attention because it doesn't happen a lot. Now imagine those matchups happened once, twice, three times every year. Not as exciting. People complain that Real and Bayern play each other every year. Now imagine that actually literally being every year. And those two teams, like I mentioned, that qualify based on coefficients inherently makes the competition less truly competitive and consolidates power to historically good teams. It ensures that big clubs like Arsenal or Milan can't fail because no matter how bad they are, they'll be able to qualify as long as they can maintain their coefficient and just be average. That takes the merit out of the game, the same merit that people were bashing the Super League for getting rid of. So, Jack, I'm going to ask you, speaking of the Super League, is this better or worse than the Super League format that was suggested? And what do you think about this change in general? You know, it, it te technically it's better, but it's better in the fact that this is like garbage, like a garbage can. And the Super League was like a full on dumpster. Right. Uh, it, neither of these are good. And they're both they while this one isn't inherently anti-competition because that was the overall consensus around the super league this one still has that same thing it, it's still driven by money because it's all about more games getting more revenue all of that kind of stuff and it's and it favors some bigger teams i don't think it i don't think it should be done personally i think that it should stay as the way it is because it makes it far more exciting i think you're able to expand it still like expand the UCL format without having to do all of this, right? Like, I mean, the only the only difficulty then is that you have nine different groups, which would make it very tough to, you know, figure out who who gets in from the like top two or whatever. But 
I'm sure, I'm sure there's a way to figure that out. Like I, I want to see them walk back on this. And I hope that people put some more pressure on this, similar to what was said about the Super League, because I think that it's still pretty bad. Yes. And speaking of putting pressure on the higher ups at FIFA and UEFA, we have some people putting pressure on the people who were trying to make the Super League happen. Uh, a lot of people are calling for owners to give up their clubs. So a nice transition into the next topic. Jack, why don't you go ahead with a lot of fan protests alongside uh, the Super League and Champions League news? Yeah, well, with that, uh, with all the discontent over the Super League, a lot of fans are rightfully so angry at the owners for making a decision that they saw as only driven by money. So what has happened at each club? Well, there's been protests at four of these uh, clubs in England that joined the Super League. So they're, of course, the ones that, that, uh, that people probably remember most uh, so far is the Chelsea fans who gathered outside Stamford Bridge in protest before the game against Brighton last Tuesday when the club was still signed up to the competition, but then pulled out following a lot of pressure. Not necessarily because of the protest, but uh, it, it, it certainly seemed that way. So that, that was the first protest. But after that happened, a lot of other supporter, supporters who... Chelsea fans, I think, generally still like Roman Abramovich. Yeah. But a lot of other fans, specifically of Manchester United, Liverpool, and Arsenal, were not too happy with their owners. So on Friday, before their game with Everton, a ton of Gunners fans, not a ton exactly, more like half a ton, around a thousand Arsenal fans were gathered around the Emirates Stadium before their Premier League game with Everton, trying to call on owner Stan Kroenke, who owns a bunch of U.S. sports franchises as well, to leave as the owner. Another uh, another interesting thing about this is, uh, you know, the CEO of Spotify offered to buy the club if yeah. uh, if Kroenke would put it up for sale. But according to a, I, I believe a son of Stan Kroenke, he doesn't have any intention to sell the club as of now, Ooh. which no doubt Gunners fans are very upset about. Manchester United then. The, the day after, and also Liverpool on that same day had protests. Perhaps the biggest one was outside Old Trafford, where about two to 3,000 Manchester United fans gathered around outside Old Trafford and also entering the club's training ground on that same day, on Saturday, yeah. to protest against the Glazer family's ownership. Some of the most prominent banners, at least, were Glazers out and 51% Manchester United FC which refers to, of course, what we talked about on Thursday's episode, that 50 plus one rule. So it looks like there's a lot of momentum towards fan ownership of these clubs. But ultimately, in my opinion, given that, you know, all, all of these clubs just want money and they're still getting money, they're probably not going to sell these clubs, in all honesty. It, it, it's unfortunate, but they probably won't sell it. But that, that's my opinion on it. AJ, do you think that these protests will really have any effect? In my opinion, I think that's the wrong question to ask. The, the, the way that I look at this is, is this doing any harm? And the answer is obviously no. These protests, no matter how you spin it, can only help. Even if they, they don't do anything, that's still better than just staying silent, right? It's right. much better to 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 protest in vain and 
trying to destroy the commercialization that took away your club, then just let it happen. And so by showing that that you are against these owners, you're against what they're doing to the club, you're against what they're doing to your community, that at least can signal and potentially get them out of the club. And that would that would be a positive for many of these fans. And just to see like the amount of support going on for these fan protests across social media and even there in person, the amount of people coming in to support one single cause, it, it, it's really heartwarming to see. And if we can keep this ball moving and try to get some more changes and more fan control within the soccer world, that would be amazing. But moving on to the real quick section, we have uh, two just you know, small stories to go over that we wanted to mention. Schalke in the Bundesliga got relegated for the first time since 1991. They were the second place team for just mere seasons ago, really. So it's kind of sad to see them fall from grace as much as they did. But hopefully they can bounce back and hopefully Matthew Hoppy, U.S. men's national team striker for them, can really bag some goals in the second Bundesliga. Uh, next, we have fans in stadiums once again. In MLS and uh, the English Premier League, we're seeing more fans enter the stadiums. With the EFL Cup this past uh, Sunday, we saw fans at Wembley, both Manchester City and Tottenham Hotspur fans. So it was nice to see them uh, cheer on the team. It's really weird to actually hear real chanting, real people reacting to goals and stuff. So really awesome to see. And we also have in MLS a lot of stadiums opening up, including our home team, Allianz Field with Minnesota United. Seeing that open up was really, really cool. But uh, one thing I wanted to highlight was LAFC's vaccination policy. They were able to have a lot more people in the supporter section than some other teams did because they required people to show their vaccine documentation to show that they were they were fully vaccinated, they were, they were good to go. They still wore masks, but they were able to stand more shoulder to shoulder, as they would say, in their supporter section. Jack, is that not just great to see? Yeah, I, I think it's great to see fans back. And I, I love that vaccination policy as well. I think, I honestly think a lot more stadiums should adopt that because, you know, I, I think it, it's just common sense, but I, I won't get too deep into that into that one. All right. Well, let's get deep into a topic that I'm really excited for. We have a new new section in this podcast Jack usually has his his own thing that he likes to do, kind of switched up every so often. But now with the lower leagues in Europe kind of closing out their season, we're getting a, a clearer picture on what the end of the season looks like for these lower leagues. So now we're going to go into Jack's lower league lowdown. Jack, take it away for this inaugural section. Yeah, well, with all the excitement our show has given to, you know, the top five leagues in Europe and MOS in North America, we miss out on a lot of lower league excitement. Some people argue that these are the most competitive and exciting leagues in the world. And overall, I'd agree in a lot of instances. So with the end of the season coming up, I'm going to give you a lower league lowdown going over the final run-in of games, focusing on the EFL Pyramid, Serie B, and the two Bundesliga. So these are going to be kind of quick fire, but uh, I, I think that these are exciting, and I'm going to give you some games to look out for in the in the coming weeks. So let's start in the EFL pyramid with the championship. The automatic promotion places have been decided. Norwich got promoted after an impressive campaign where they were completely dominant in the league, and Watford just got promoted this past weekend after a victory over AJ's arch rivals Millwall. 
And that means that the cycling goalkeeper is back in the prem. Let's go. That's, that's awesome to see Ben Foster getting back up. And the playoff race is intense. There are now four teams in the running for those four spots. So it's all to play for seeding now. Bournemouth, Swansea, Brentford, and Barnsley are playing for those seeding. And of course, Daryl DK and uh, Cameron Carter-Vickers play for two of those team, bar- teams, Barnsley and Bournemouth, respectively. So we have some USMNT guys in there. And Bournemouth and Brentford so far look the most threatening to secure the top two seeds. Although Brentford, like last season, have seemingly flamed out of energy. They've, they've gotten... Uh, two wins and three draws in their last five, although they did just beat Bournemouth impressively this past weekend. And Barnsley's brief bump is looking to stay on pretty well. They've they're, uh, they've only lost one in their last five. And Bournemouth, before that loss against Brentford, was on fire with four wins in five. Uh, overall, like Swansea looked like the weakest team in this, uh, but I, I, I'd, I'd imagine that they'd put together a decent run as well. And on the other end, the relegation race is pretty intense. There's four teams in the mix here, and three are going to be relegated. Darby County, a historic founder of the Football League, are on a bad run of form and have lost five in a row after being in a playoff final two years ago. They're only four points off safety. And Wickham Wanderers, unfortunately, are already pretty much doomed. They basically need to win all all of their last games and hope no one above them wins a single game, which is going to be very tough. But that is the championship. Let's move down the pyramid to League One. Hull City got promoted back to the championship. Well, Peterborough realistically just got promoted after win against playoff candidates Charlton Athletic, which is a team that I'm rather fond of. This playoff race is getting more exciting by the minute, and it's even more exciting than the championships, honestly. There's about 11 teams competing for four playoff spots here. Sunderland and Lincoln City look likely to retain the third and fourth place spots, but Blackpool, Charlton, Oxford, Portsmouth, and MK Dons all look like they could challenge for those final two spots. Charlton got relegated after missing out of by of safety by one point last season, and you know it. They were trying to pro, uh, get back into the championship after a tough run of form. They're not on the greatest form right now, but I'm rooting for them. There's also a nice relegation fight here as well. Bristol Rovers are officially relegated after a loss to Portsmouth this weekend, and Swindon will be will likely be joining them in League Two as well. The game to watch out for in the coming week is Rochdale versus AFC Wimbledon on April 27th. If Rochdale lose, they're getting relegated. If they win, the fight is still alive. So that's going to be one to look out for. In League Two, personally, my favorite league because it has my favorite uh, my favorite second team in England, Newport County. Uh, Cheltenham are going are likely to make their way up to League One. They're six points ahead of the playoffs, and if they win against Carlisle on April 27th, they could secure it if they win or draw. It's anyone's game for the other two automatic promotion places. More accurately, it's between four clubs, Cambridge on 77 points, Bolton on 73, trying to get back up to the Premier League after a tough couple of years, Orkham on 72 points, and Tranmere. However, the remaining two playoff places are looking to go to the teams from 6th to 11th, Tranmere, Forest Green, uh, Newport County, Exeter City, Salford City, and Leyden Orient, and Carlisle. This is a playoff race to watch, and it will come down to the wire. And in League Two, the bottom two get relegated out of the football league altogether. And it looks likely that it will be Grimsby Town and Southend United. Keep an eye out for the match between Exeter and Grimsby on April 27th. It's a must-win match for Grimsby 
anything other than a win sees them relegated. And then I'm gonna I'm gonna go straight to the the two Bundesliga since I've, I've spent a lot of uh, a lot of time on this. Uh, and that and in a Twitter poll, I asked what people wanted to hear most about, and the second Bundesliga won pretty overwhelmingly. I've got to say, in researching it, it's a pretty interesting race. And the strangest part is, and maybe not the greatest omen for Schalke, neither of the teams relegated last season, which are Paderborn and Dusseldorf, look all that likely to challenge for promotion. Right now, VFL Bochum are likely to win the division. They are six points ahead with four games left, while Greuther Firth also look the most likely to go up, sitting second, four points ahead of third. Hamburger SV. Uh, who were in the Bundesliga two seasons ago, are on 51 points and currently hold the third-place playoff spot. But that could easily go to Dusseldorf, who are on 49 points, Heidenheim, who are on 48 points, or Holstein-Kiel, who are just one point behind them and made a deep DFB Pokal run, which included knocking out Bayern Munich. They have four games in hand, so double the amount of games everyone else has left to play, and are only one point off the playoffs after a 3-1 victory over Osnabrück who are a relegation candidate. Given they have double the games to play, they could make a really solid run for uh, and challenge for automatic promotion. In the relegation fight, Wurzburger kickers look like they're going to be relegated. Nine points off the relegation playoff place and nine to play for. If they escape, it might be one of the greatest escapes of all time. But this relegation playoff race looks likely to be within Osnabrück, Sandhausen, who pulled off an impressive win this weekend, and Eintracht Braunschweig, are all within four points. One's going to get automatically relegated, one gets a playoff chance, and the other is going to be safe. I'm going to guess that uh, Sandhausen achieved safety. They are on three victories in a row, and Eintracht Braunschweig will have to pin their survival hopes on a playoff win. The lower leagues are exciting, and you should keep an eye out for some of these games because they could define the season and see who gets promoted to each of these different leagues. So I, I, I'll be looking out for these, and I hope you are too, because these are some of the most exciting games in soccer. Yeah, they are. And I, I think people sometimes overlook the lower leagues, whether it's lower in just the fact that they're a lower division or you know smaller leagues throughout Europe, throughout the world, whether that's uh, the Portuguese league, whether that's MLS. And I think they're doing themselves a disservice because there's always a lot of fun wherever you look and view soccer. And so let's move on to the U.S. men's national team corner. Thank you, Jack, for that inaugural section. Can't wait for more of that in the next coming weeks. Uh, I decided to stick with one question today, and I wanted to ask, should we focus on the Gold Cup or the Nations League? This is a very big topic within U.S. soccer Twitter because, well, when you look at it, the U.S. men's national team have a predicament. There's two major tournaments this summer, and both tournaments is something that you know we would like to win. One is the first edition of the CONCACAF Nations League, where we'll play Honduras in the semis, and the winner of Costa Rica and Mexico in the final, or the loser of that match in the third place game if we lose that semifinal. And the other is the Gold Cup, the premier national team competition for North America. Both are very important, especially when we're getting ready for a packed World Cup qualifying schedule. Uh, for the next year, we can use these tournaments to prepare. So which one do we prioritize? There's some ways at really looking at it. With the Nations League, when I'm looking at the pros of prioritizing the Nations League, my first thought is that this is the first ever competition. So winning it would be really, really cool. Two, 
it's only a two game tournament. So you can get your top level talents tournament experience without overworking them. And you can rest them for the remainder of the summer to reduce chances of fatigue or injury and get them ready for a very long world cup qualifier season ahead. Three, the U.S. men's national team would be for sure playing the best teams in CONCACAF. And those teams would probably bring, bring their A squad, making the games truly meaningful. And lastly, going off of that, we wouldn't have any dead rubber games against CONCACAF minnows. No games against, I don't know, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, even though they're definitely not qualifying for the Gold Cup. I'll say Guyana. No offense, Jack. Uh, but for cons of the Nations League, the first, obviously, it's a short tournament, so it doesn't really have a lot of tournament experience to give. So the guys who are going to be there won't have too many chances for really improving their game and improving their chemistry with each other. It, it's just two games, after all. Two, it's just the Nations League. It's not historically big tournament. And three, it's also just in one location. I believe it's Denver or somewhere in Colorado. So it doesn't really challenge us to adapt to different situations, which is something that we're going to need going into qualifiers. Uh, when we're looking at the Gold Cup, there's a couple of pros as well. Uh, number one for pros, it's the competition for national teams in CONCACAF. So winning it always feels nice. Two, it would be great to win it after losing the final to Mexico in 2019. Three, it's a longer tournament, which means more tournament experience for the guys. And it also feels like a more legitimate tournament because there's a group stage and a knockout phase. Four, we'd likely be playing teams that we'll see in World Cup qualifying. Curaçao, Jamaica, Costa Rica, Honduras, Panama, Canada, all teams we could or will actually face off with. Getting experience playing them is very important. And five, we'll play in multiple different cities, so we'll play against more hostile crowds. We got six Texas stadiums, one in Orlando, one in Kansas City, one in Glendale, Phoenix, and the final is in Las Vegas. So with these uh, different situations, different uh, cities, we have to adapt to them. And we also have to adapt to the types of fans that are going to be there. Because when you're in Texas, when you're in Orlando, when you're in Las Vegas, you have a very diverse crowd. So let's say you play, I don't know, Honduras or Mexico. It's very likely that Honduras and Mexican fans are going to come out in a big way. So we need to learn how to deal with that. And I think that's a great way to do it. There are cons as well. We play against some minnows. Two, it's longer, so there's going to be a huge injury risk. And three, it's kind of expected that we win. So if we throw all of our best uh, players at this competition and win, it's not a big deal, and people really don't care because, again, we are expected to win. This is my view. We should play our A team at the Nations League so we get top-level opposition and build at least a little bit of chemistry and use the friendlies beforehand to find our best squad and we should just go for it with the Nations League. Basically, play the likes of Pulisic, Dest, McKenney, Adams, Brooks, Reyna, Musa, Sargent, like all the players who are for sure going to be in our best 23, potentially a starting lineup, no matter what. And once that tournament is done, let them rest because they've had a busy club season and need the rest. We know what they're capable of, so there's no really need to play them more than they have to, especially when it risks injury. And take some other guys who aren't automatic starters, but could be big players. Players like Ayrton, Richards, Cannon, Weah, Siabachu, DK, Turner, and have them fill out the bench for the Nations League. And then take those guys, especially if they didn't play all that much, and combine them with some fringe guys to make up our Gold Cup squad. 
we should utilize the Gold Cup as a B-team tournament. That's right. Use it to find out who makes up the rest of our squad. Get minutes and experience the guys who need it. Players like DK, Siabachu, Brian Reynolds, Ochoa, Turner, Della Torre, Odisoe, Legette, Soto, Giochini, Mark McKenzie. I could go on. But this squad should be a mix of Nations League bench players, fringe veterans, and up-and-coming youngsters. And we should use it to find out who makes up spots 12 to 23 because we know who our best 11 is. So we need to find out who is going to be in our squad going into World Cup qualifying that aren't just the automatic starters. And this is important because we need a lot of good depth in order to survive the, I don't know what they're calling it, the the Ocho, the Octagon, whatever they're calling the, the uh, the eight team last phase of World Cup qualifying. And the thing is, our B squad could win the World Cup. Uh, not the World Cup, the Gold Cup. I'd love to see them win the World Cup. But unfortunately, we're going to need some of our first team players for that as well. So even if we are just prioritizing the Nations League, that doesn't mean we're just throwing away the Gold Cup. It's kind of, we prioritize the Nations League, but the Gold Cup is supported by the players that play in the Nations League that don't quite make the cut to be the starters in that tournament. Overall, I think that we're in for a very exciting summer for U.S. men's national team fans and those players as well, because it's going to be a lot of great tournament experience to get. So that's my answer on whether or not we should prioritize the Nations League or the Gold Cup. Nations League with an asterisk. And check out next week when we talk all about one specific great story about the U.S. men's national team in the U.S. MNT corner. Let's move on to last week's predictions as we try to move on to the big games that are coming this week, which there are a lot of, but we have to get this out of the way first. Let's talk about Man City Woman versus the Chelsea women's team in the Women's Super League in England. Jack, kick us off with that and go over the scoring system for our prediction section. Yeah, well, as always, uh, getting the right uh, the right winner correct gets you 10 points, but getting the exact scoreline correct gets you 20. And of course, you get zero points for getting none of it right. So starting off with a women's Super League game, a potential title decider between Manchester City and Chelsea in the FA Women's Super League. This is a classic case of both teams trying not to lose more than trying to win. It was tough for Chelsea as they had to look forward to a women's Champions League game this weekend. Uh, but they opened the scoring courtesy of the top goal scorer in the division, Sam Kerr, on 20 minutes. However, just nine minutes later, City equalized through a Chloe Kelly goal, but they weren't. Uh, but they were not on level terms for long, as Chelsea were rewarded a penalty just five minutes later, and current Women's Player of the Year, Pernilla Harder, converted it. But City weren't about to give up, and they fought through the second half and eventually equalized in the 75th minute through Lauren Hemp, and it ended 2-2. Neither team really looked to attack after after it got equalized. And this likely ends the title race in the FA Women's Super League, with Chelsea likely to win the title. AJ guessed a 1-1 draw, and he gets 10 points for that. I guess Chelsea would win 1-2 uh, one, one for zero points. You know, if we count the first 75 minutes, I got 20 points. But alas, soccer is a game of 90 minutes. Yes, I'm very excited for that. I really... I really saw that draw coming, so I'm going to give myself full credit for that. But I'm not going to give myself full credit for this next game. It's West Ham United versus Chelsea, the first ever iteration of the final third derby. I, of course, am a West Ham fan. Jack is a Chelsea fan. 
you know, seeing as Chelsea did actually win one to zero, I'm gonna let Jack kind of give his thoughts on this game and how he saw it because we were actually reacting to it live with our live stream. Jack, what did you think about this game? Yeah, well, West Ham were surely inhibited by injuries, and it was very visible on the pitch. Uh, you know, they couldn't really get a hold of the game. They were missing Declan Rice, who's very important in their midfield. And they were missing a lot of first-choice center backs like Craig Dawson, uh, who's out with the suspension, and Aaron Cresswell, who provides a lot of great assists for the team. And without those players, they couldn't really get a hold of the game. And Chelsea pretty much dominated for most of the half. West Ham got into the game a little bit in the, around the 35th minute. But after that, Chelsea took back control and Timo Werner scored what ended up being the winning goal Ooh. in the 43rd minute. AJ felt pretty bad that uh, uh, West Ham got uh, turbo Timo'd. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, it and, uh, you know, it, it was it didn't really look all that exciting in the in the in the other half after that. There were some good chances by both sides. Mason Mount had a couple of shots from long range that were on target that required good saves. Timo Werner probably should have had a second, but scuffed an easy chance refer, uh, going back to his original form. And, uh, you know, overall, West Ham didn't look likely to get in, back into it, but it didn't help that there was a bit of an incident on the field that I'll let AJ touch on. Yes, so Balbuena, one of our, albeit second-choice center backs, was going to clear a ball and as he cleared the ball and his foot came down it caught the calf i believe of ben chilwell of chelsea fc and chilwell went down because obviously studs to your leg obviously hurts and after checking var the ref deemed that to be a red card which got a lot of people heated both David Moyes, both West Ham fans, but also Chelsea fans and pretty much everyone in the footballing world because of kind of a weird precedent that it sets. The fact that, that, that Balbuena wasn't even going for a tackle, wasn't even challenging the ball, literally was just clearing it because it seemed like he just had the space and time to clear it. Chilwell runs in, is unfortunately uh, in the crossfire with his studs and he goes down completely on accident. I don't know what Balbuena could have done differently other than just let Chilwell take the ball and not clear the ball away. So it brought up a lot of questions on what the heck even is dangerous play, what the heck even is reckless play, if it could be 100% on accident, 100% not even his intention to even do a tackle. And so he got sent off. We're going to see if they're going to try to get it rescinded. But that kind of took the sales away from West Ham. Well, I mean, West Ham had some positive play through the likes of Fredericks, Suchek, uh, Sufal, and Lingard. But unfortunately, Chelsea just got the better of us. Uh, I ended up going for West Ham because I just couldn't let it go away. Uh, I couldn't bet against my own team against Chelsea. I said two to one for zero points. Jack said one to three. So kind of far off, but, you know, he guessed Chelsea would win, and he was right. He got 10 points. Very unfortunate, for me at least. Uh, next, we have another marquee matchup because everyone wanted to see West Ham United versus Chelsea, just like how everyone wanted to see LAFC versus Seattle Sounders in MLS. That ended up being one-to-one, -one, and this was a matchup where that we could see in the Western Conference Final in the playoffs, 
And it's a matchup that is a rematch of the 2019 Western Conference semifinal and the 2020 Western Conference opening round, both which saw Seattle come out victorious. Both teams have bona fide stars, and both were missing a good amount of them. LAFC were missing Vela and Rossi due to injury, and Seattle were missing Lodero as well. However, this game was still really great. In the second minute, LAFC had a free kick right at the edge of the box, and Edward Atuesta blasted it under the wall to make it 1-0. Always, always, always have someone lying down behind the wall. That should just be something that every team does now. Uh, but a Brad Smith rebound header in the second half tied it to the eventual final scoreline of 1-1. to Both sides will be pretty happy with this draw. Aside from the front three, every aspect of LAFC was really good. And Seattle's back line with their uh, kind of back five that are going on was strong as usual. I think it's going to be really good for them. I went with a 3-1 to one victory for LAFC. Unfortunately, I didn't see that Vela was going to be out for that. This may have been different with him. That got me zero points. And Jack said 2-2. Two to two. He saw the draw coming, and he got 10 points for that. Jack, why don't you take us to a huge, huge matchup, a really exciting matchup, and I'm kind of jealous that you got to cover this game. We're going to Leon versus Lille. Jack, take it away. Yeah, well, you know, this was a potential title decider if Lille absolutely needed to win this to keep the pressure on PSG. At, at first, though, it didn't seem like Lille were really ready for this game. Yet. They needed a win to keep themselves in the title race, but went down a goal 20 minutes in as Islam Slimani scored uh, a, pretty, a pretty good goal. And it got even worse for them as Jose Fonte really clumsily directed the ball into his own net. 15 minutes later, as Lille went 2-0 down. However, Turkish striker Burak Yilmaz, who happens to be 35, gave Les Dogs hope right before halftime as he scored in the 45th minute directly from a free kick. It was a fantastic goal. 15 minutes into the second half, Lille had arrived in the game fully as Jonathan David, Canadian international, scored the equalizer. Then 85 minutes in, it looked headed for a draw, but Barack Yilmaz launched onto a lawn ball from Mike Menyon, the Lille keeper, and beat the defender marking him and chipped the Leon keeper to make it 2-3 to three to Lille, a comeback to show Lille have the medal to consider themselves title contenders, and the win brings them back to the top of league on one point ahead of PSG. Simply put, a fantastic game to watch. Honestly, one of the best games I've watched in a while. I really enjoyed this one. Uh, AJ guessed 1-1. One, one. He was so close to getting 10 uh, points. But Burak Yilmaz, uh, the, uh, the Turkish goat, had to foil him. Uh, so he gets zero points. I guessed a conservative 0-1 win for Lille. But you know what? I'll take the 10 points for guessing Lille's win any day over nothing. Yeah. And what a result for their aspirations. What a result for Tim Weah, who could be, I believe, the first American to ever win Liga don't know the stats there, but let's go on to another title deciding match to an, another actual title deciding match. I suppose it's Man City versus Tottenham Hotspur in the EFL Cup final. Man City won that matchup one to zero. And what an exciting match! Not the first half was a bore with not much action. In fact, City's Zach Steffen, USMNT's first choice keeper, didn't have to save any shot from Tottenham during that time. Yet at the same time, City just 
couldn't get their final third of firing, you know, name drop. Uh, an 82-minute header from Laporta was the difference maker in this quiet final. Despite the scoreline, City outshot Spurs 21-2, to giving them an expected goal of 3.5 to Spurs' abysmal, abysmal expected goal rating of 0.04. Zach Steffen became the fifth American player to win the cup and the fourth goalkeeper, and Spurs failed to win another trophy, causing Hungman's son to cry after the final whistle. Too bad for him. I saw the light. I said it was going to be a conservative 1-0 win for City, and I was definitely right. I got 20 points for that. Jack also guessed a City win. He said 2-0. He got 10 points for that. And I'm actually going to let Jack tell you what the final scores were and what our eventual records why don't you do the honors? Yeah, well, uh, before the Leo and Leon game, we were tied at 30 points apiece. And because of that game, that gave me 10 points, giving me 40 points to AJ's 30. I finally broke a losing streak of like, what, three or four weeks, I think, at this yeah. point. It was a pretty bad losing streak. But in doing so, if we, if we use general like soccer point uh, allocations, I, I, AJ has five wins, 10 losses, and one draw for 16 points. And I have five wins, eight losses, and three draws for 18 points. So I regained my place at the top, I guess, Ooh. if we use that kind of scoring metric. I'm not sure if we've actually agreed to do that. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, sure. <laughs> if, if we were to use it, you know, I'll, I'll take it for now. Yeah, I am going to come back in a mean way this week. Let's jump right into that with this week's predictions. We have five really, really big games from all across the world. So, Jack, I said all across the world as if we don't primarily cover North America and <laughs> Europe. But you know what I mean. Jack, we're starting off with a UEFA Champions League matchup with one of your teams, Chelsea. I'll let you take Real Madrid versus Chelsea first off. Yeah, well, you know, these two teams are the two powerhouses, I guess, left in the competition, as in they both have won European trophies before. Mm -hmm. PSG and Man City on the other path have not. So this is a really exciting matchup. And a lot of people are looking at this as well uh, in, under the interesting lens of the Super League nonsense, where Real Madrid, Florentino Perez is still adamant about the Super League, while Chelsea withdrawing kind of caused its collapse. So it's going to be a very interesting game for several reasons. But overall, Real Madrid in their last four games have had three 0-0 draws. They did have a 3-0 win over Cadiz, but Cadiz is like in last place in La Liga. They are not doing well. So that's not all that impressive. And Real Madrid just don't look that dangerous right now. They don't look that likely to score. And they are missing a few key players. It looks like Tony Kroos might be out for, for this semifinal. And he was pretty influential in the quarterfinal against Liverpool. And on the other hand, Chelsea look relatively confident. You know, the West Brom uh, destruction really kind of struck some sense into them. And they started back into their defensive shape. And ultimately, after a win against City in, in the FA Cup semifinal and a win over West Ham, a top four rival, you know, I think that they're going to get the same scoreline they did in those matches. And I'm going to Real Madrid zero to Chelsea one for a vital away goal for the Blues. 
I have a couple notes of what you said. Number one, I like how you called Chelsea a superpower in the Champions League or whatever after (laughs) winning, what, once? One Champions League. One more than City. Yeah, one more than City. That's not saying much, but (laughs) (laughs) I also think it's interesting how we both did research on this and we came to two completely different conclusions. Because I think Real Madrid are actually pretty decent. They have not lost since January, which is 12 matches in a row, taking down the likes of Atletico Madrid, Liverpool, Barcelona, and Atalanta down during that time. Having Benzema in you know pretty good form, even though they have had 3-0-0 draws in the past couple of games, if you look beyond that, they, they have been doing pretty good, especially when you have uh, Benzema also in form, as I mentioned. And having a sporting cast of Casemiro, Marcelo, and Rodrigo, and other players perform pretty well is good. Chelsea have been dominant, I will admit that. But this is their first big test since Atletico Madrid. I think they can do it. But to walk into Madrid expecting an automatic win is a fool's errand. I think I can definitely see Chelsea winning this this tie. But their their decisive win is not going to come from this leg, I don't think. It'll be close, but I have Real edging Chelsea out one to zero. So the, the reverse scoreline of what you said. Uh, That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I, I think it's fair. I can also definitely see Chelsea winning this one to zero. I think no, no matter which way you look at it, these teams are in some form or another pretty evenly matched, at least at this leg. Another UCL matchup that's going to be huge, another one that's going to be kind of hard to predict, is PSG versus Mad City. Because this is El Cashico, oil money abundant here. PSG are finding positive form, going level on points with first place Lille in Liga. City having good this season, winning against Tottenham in the EFL Cup. But they did lose to Leeds and Chelsea. They will not have Kevin De Bruyne due to injury and weren't really that clinical in the EFL Cup final this past Sunday. They left a lot to to yearn for with their fans because this is just not the top level team that we're expected to see they'll need to step it up if they want to win at i don't even know how to pronounce the stadium park de prince that's not even probably prince prince of course well <laughs> they're gonna get pronced on if they don't really step it up and that's why i'm having them lose to psg two to one jack what do you see with this uh oil money rivalry there's no way that this can be real. I, I, I mean, it is, but I predicted the reverse scoreline. I Let's predicted PSG 1 to Manchester City 2. And the reason why, and I think you got a few details wrong there, PSG are without Mbappe. He has a suspected thigh injury. He's a huge I saw that, but, but I, I, I've read that it's just a knock. If, if he was we'll out, see. I probably would have uh, made this a draw. But I've heard that like he's mostly fine. You could look it up, but but that that's that's okay. what I saw. But Kevin De Bruyne is fit and played against Tottenham. I'm not sure if you saw that or if you noticed, but he is fit. And also Sergio Aguero is not fit. And City didn't start an actual striker in their lineup against Tottenham because they were saving their strikers for this game. They also rested Rodri. They rested a ton of players that are big. For, the, for this. And I think that's going to be the difference. And ultimately, I think that that it's going to be a win for City. I, I mean, it's a I, it's a good thing we, we have two different score lines because it's going to make it a lot more interesting yeah. throughout the week. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think City have the 
They, they have the will to do this. They want this trouble badly and they're going to fight for it. They're going to fight for it. Okay. Okay. I could also see Man City winning this. I will stick with PSG because I think they have what it takes. Let's move on to another Champions League matchup. But wait, there's only two matchups in the semifinals of the, the UEFA Champions League. I'm talking about the better Champions League. I'm talking about CONCACAF oh. Champions League. This is the marquee matchup in my mind going into this uh, round, uh, this quarterfinal round. Columbus Crew versus Monterey. MLS Cup Champions Crew versus the 1920 Liga MX Champions Monterey. Columbus, good run of form, pounding Real Esteli last round and holding a talented Philadelphia Union to a 0-0 draw. However, they're missing a laundry list of players. Aiden Morris, Darlington Nagby, Kevin Molino, Marlon Harrison, Vito Wormgoer. It'll be a tough game, even at home. Monterey have lost the last three games, losing this past weekend to heated rivals Tigres. Still a very, very good team, obviously. It's going to be tough, but I see this as a loss for crew only because they're missing so many key players. So sorry, crew fans for that. I'm I'm giving it a conservative zero to one loss. Uh, the one goal being from Monterey. I think they could win this tie, but it's not going to be at the home leg. It's going to take a lot of work in the away leg. Jack, if you guessed a one zero win for Columbus, I'm going to lose my mind. I didn't guess a one zero win for Columbus. Okay. But- I guess a 2-1 win for Columbus instead. Oh, wow. Okay. I, Columbus fans, I've got your back. AJ doesn't believe in you. I'm believing in you here. Uh, Monterey, you said three losses in three. They've gotten a red card in each of those matches, too. So they have a, <laughs> they've had a run of disciplinary problems. And also, I think you're underestimating how much more rest Columbus has gotten. No, they, they're they, not they, playing an MLS game this weekend. They did get a bye. That is true. Right. And Monterey, on the other hand, just played on Saturday against, you know, one of the best teams in Liga MX or one of the better teams, at least. And because of that, I think that this is going to be tougher for Monterey because they have to travel away. And after all of the, all, like, not having as much rest, I think Columbus could do this. They have injuries, but Jazzy Zardes is still going to be there. And I think he's going to come out and... Like, you know, I think he can score both of the goals that, I, that I'm predicting here. But I think Columbus are going to be able to win this. I don't think the clean sheet's on the cards because Monterey have some talented attackers. But I'm going to believe in Columbus. Okay, okay. Well, let's go back to Europe for the UEFA Europa League. We're covering probably the more exciting matchup between the two, Villarreal versus Arsenal. Jack, what say you about the Unai Emery revenge matchup? Oh, I, I think there's a better, uh, better name for that. The good evening Derby. Ah, uh, yes, so yes. I, I think, I think that that's what this is. This is going to be an interesting matchup because honestly, neither of these teams are on that good of form. <laughs> Arsenal nope, yeah. had a really disappointing loss to Everton where burned Leno just did his best Keppa impression. Uh, I say that even though Kep has kept like five clean sheets and five under Tuchel, but whatever. Yeah, maybe maybe Karius in the the maybe Champions Car- League Car- final. Yeah, it was a, it was it was a really good Karius impression to yes. be honest. Uh, and he had an own goal there. But Villarreal are not playing that well. They did play against Barcelona and lost two to one. Uh, and they also had some really unfortunate results that are leading that are leaving them behind in a race for a Europa League spot again. But Villarreal do have one of the best strikers in La Liga in Gerard Moreno. And he is 
if I'm remembering correctly, the top scorer in the Europa League this season. And on the other hand, Arsenal are missing a lot of players to injury. I think Aubameyang is still out and Lacazette even is out. So they're not going to be playing with a real recognized striker, I, I think, which could hurt them quite a bit. At the uh, And on the other hand, Villarreal's, uh, I'm not going to pronounce this right, Chukweze. Uh, yeah, Chukweze, we'll say that. His form, he has scored three goals in three games, including one against Barcelona, which is impressive in and of itself. And because of that, that form, and also Gerard Moreno and Arsenal injuries, I'm going to go Villarreal to get a conservative 1-0 home win. All right. So this is a match between 7th place and 10th place. 7th place in La Liga, 10th place in the Premier League. Not exactly that exciting. Like you said before, Arsenal are missing some key players. Aubameyang to malaria because he got that when he was playing in the international window. Legitimately crazy, but it just reminds you that malaria is still a really big deal in uh, third world countries. But I I, I don't know. I don't know. I like, I look at their inconsistent form. I look at their inconsistent players. I'm like, I have no idea what to pick. So I just went with my gut. I look at Arsenal. I'm like, they still have some pretty good players. They have, they have some players that can make a difference, uh, even if they're not performing as well as they should be. So I went with the reverse of you, Jack. That's right. I went with a 1-0 away win oh, for oh, Arsenal. God. This is this is getting wow. crazy. This is getting crazy. So that's why I want you to go for the first uh first in this next one. Our only league matchup, Man United versus Liverpool. Who is gonna win this or maybe tie this, Jack? Yeah, well, I don't think it's possible for us to have the reverse on this one because I'm going for a zero-zero draw between these two. Okay. Neither of these teams are going to want to lose. United don't want to cede the title to City. Because if they lose, that's exactly what happens. Assuming City win, all if United lose, it's over. They have no chance of even trying to challenge for the title. Uh, and on the other hand, Liverpool don't want to lose because they need points to get any form of Europe because they don't want to be playing in the Europa Conference League. I can tell you that much. Uh, so neither played very well last game either. Like both of like Liverpool were very poor against Newcastle, especially at the end in their defense. It was just awful. Salah is not clinical at all. Mane has been just so off form. Even though he's been scoring some goals, his form has been terrible. Firmino, not good enough. It, it's not been very good for them. Manchester United were drew, drew level with leads at home, which, you know, they, they nullified the attack well, but the positioning by some of their players, especially McTominay, was just awful in it. And... You know, I just I can just see this happening the same exact way it did earlier in the season where they played out a 0-0 draw. I'm saying the same exact thing happens again, 0-0 draw. I I don't think these teams are going to be playing to win as much as they are playing not to lose, and I think that's the determining factor. Oh, wow. Well, I remember last time you said it was, it was going to be like a 3-2 thriller. Yeah, and, and... Re- and remember how that turned out. Remember how that turned out. Yeah, so trying to get ahead of yourself. Yeah. In my mind, I think you saying it's going to be a zero-zero draw means it's not going to be a draw at all. Oh, I went boy. with a two-zero win for Manchester United. Wow. There are some, you know, things that go against that. That that you know, because I, I I could have also done a draw very easily, 
Man United have to worry about their matchup with Roma in the Europa League as well. Their last loss in the league, however, did come to Sheffield United in January. And they have players that are firing right now. Greenwood, Cavani, Rashford have been players that have been doing really well this past month. And that's not even to mention Fernandez, who, while not getting on the score sheet in the past couple of weeks, which is, you know, to the detriment of my fantasy Premier League team, he's still been really, really good. And Liverpool, they haven't been as bad, but they're still not playing very well. I think there's just levels to this. It's Manchester United at Old Trafford. Liverpool are not on the same caliber, not even the same stratosphere as them right now. It could be a draw, but in my mind, Manchester United has to see this and see and say, you know, this is definitely a matchup that we could win and it'll be very, very important in our aspirations going forward in the league. I'm saying two to zero. I'm going to manifest just manifest Fernandez getting a goal because I I just need it. I need it so bad in order to do well in the in FPL. So that's what I say. Jack, how do you feel about predictions this week? Do you think you could continue uh, a potential good run of form? Well, the good thing about this is it seems like really unlikely that we'll have a tie given that we predicted almost the exact opposite results in every single one of these. So uh, I'm feeling pretty good about them, especially, you know, I – I, I'm ba- I had to back Chelsea in that first one, so I might have to pay a tax for that one on, on that. But we'll we'll see about it. I I feel confident enough. I'm feeling very unconfident, if I'm being honest. I picked <laughs> a lot of what I thought would be very smart choices, but now as you're like saying, actually, AJ, all of your research is absolute dog water. I'm like, oh yeah, maybe you're right. <laughs> so we'll see how it it shakes up. Hopefully, I can get that win. But that is the end of this episode of the final third. Jack, thank you so much for joining me again this week. Do you have anything to say to our listeners? Make sure to check out our Twitter and Instagram at Final Third Show. Uh, posting a ton of great content on there. That's how you'll get notified of new episodes as soon as they release. And also, uh, you know, any live streams that are coming up. We have a few more planned, including potentially the FA Cup semifinal, or not semifinal, final. We'll see about that one. Uh, The Copa Italia final is definitely one we want to check out and maybe a few others along the way. So you're going to want to stay tuned to to see it when those are announced. And also, it's just fun to interact with more people. So, you know, check it out. Yeah, we're almost at 100 followers on Twitter. So please, please, please get us there. We're almost to 800 listeners, 800 downloads, I should say, on this podcast. So we always appreciate that. If you want to help us grow some more, uh, leave a review, five-star review on Apple Podcasts, a couple sentences on why you like the show so much. Also, tell a friend that always, always helps. Tell your dad, even. I'm sure he would love to learn all about soccer. And yeah, we'll see you guys on Thursday for our deep dive episode. And we'll see you same time, same place next week for our news and predictions show. See ya. Bye for now.